Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, hello. This is Patrick Beeman. I am your usual host. Today's episode features Scott Brown from the Journal of Medical Insight, whose goal is to provide surgical education through videos of cutting-edge and standard-of-care surgical procedures. If standing on a step stool during your surgery rotation 10 feet away from the operating field has been your experience, you might not have the best understanding of these steps that are followed for usual surgical procedures. Well, the Journal of Medical Insight is trying to fix that. So here is Chase's interview with Dr. Scott Brown from Jomi. We've flipped the usual sequence for this episode, so the high-yield question dissections are towards the end of the episode. And just to throw it out there, check out Chase's podcast, The Medical Nemonist, which is all about accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks to help improve your study during med school. Find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Scott Brown, recently finishing his O-Laryngology residency from Duke and has been a member of JOMI for four years. That's the Journal of Medical Insights, which we're going to discuss today because it has some great surgical video content for medical students. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great, great. I'm glad to have you on here. I've looked over some of the material on your website, and it looks really interesting. And sort of what we all wish we had during our surgery uh, rotations is great hands-on point-of-view videos of all the surgeries that you're probably not going to be able to see too well during your clinical rotations and, and through a lot of other clinical experiences. Yeah, exactly. So can you describe for the audience what JOMI is and sort of how you guys got this started? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of came into the game a little bit later uh, with Jomi. One of the things that I was really interested in pursuing when I started my residency was uh, trying to find a way to really, you know, optimize or utilize the time that uh, we spent as learners in the operating room. And one of the things I think in all of surgery rotations, and in particular of laryngology, where you have small surgical fields, is, as you alluded to, difficulty in, in sort of seeing things from the surgeon's perspective. And so uh, from there, that was kind of my goal throughout residency was to try to find a way that, you know, rather than just, you know, the first time you're in the operating room, you're standing there across from a surgeon, you know, all, the, all that you're seeing is the back of a retractor. I wanted to, to find a way that we could really get things in depth and get people seeing things that they actually needed to see in order to learn these procedures. Um, and in the process of doing so, I connected with Nikita, who's the CEO of the Journal of Medical Insight. Uh, and he and I just kind of connected. They, they had done some of these filmings and some of these surgeries with orthopedic surgery and with general surgery, but hadn't yet uh, explored the, the route of otolaryngology. And we just had a really good opportunity to connect with, with one another and try to get these videos out. Um, and so you know, with, with all of our videos, and in particular, some of the ones that involve uh, videos with the screen, so in our microscopic ear surgery or endoscopic sinus surgery, we wanted to not only provide viewpoints of what you'd be seeing on the screen, but also to superimpose that on how the surgeon's moving their hands so that you know, your video wasn't just you know, the tips of these instruments, but actually learning how you need to position your hands for, for doing these surgeries. I can see how that would be very beneficial and seeing kind of a more well-rounded different points of view and connecting the dots a little bit better. I suppose you wouldn't be able to see that from one point of view necessarily. Exactly. 
you know, uh, on top of that, part of it is as, as you go along in your training, and even just in medical school too, uh, sometimes you know, you, you've seen the incision, you've seen the closure, but there are certain parts of the surgery that you really want to pick out. And so that's where we got into this idea of, of chaptering videos. And for those who, who peruse the website, you can see that all of our videos are broken up into specific chapters. And uh, in doing that, it allows you to sort of just be able to focus in on certain parts of a procedure you may want to refresh on, whether that be, you know, exposing uh, the endolymphatic sac during a mastoidectomy or performing the anterior ethmoidectomy in a sinus surgery and a uh, fest surgery. So um, I think that's really, you know, what makes things more efficient in our learning. And, and on top of that, we've tried to provide animations, annotations to really emphasize the key points and some of the key questions that attending surgeons might be asking, not only residents, but medical students as well while they're on the rotation. I was going to ask about the setup of it because, yeah, obviously when you're a medical student, you have certain categories that you really need to focus on. So finding the videos that are really going to hit home for that material is going to uh, help them navigate the website much better. Yeah, exactly. And when we started out, one of the things we did with otolaryngology was take our filming to one of the cadaver courses that we do annually for the ENT residents. And so you know, some, of the, some of the things some people may find a little bit more um, basic if you're a more advanced resident, you know, such as arterial you know, supply to say the superior thyroid lobe or things like that, which we do discuss in our videos. Um, but I think that's good because it does, it does sort of encompass you know, the breadth of learning from our early learners, whether that be medical students or interns, uh, to some of the more advanced steps that you might see in terms of facial nerve identification during a product as well. I can definitely see how this would be useful for uh, especially surgical residencies and such. Is there any material that is more geared towards medical students or is it just uh, we're sort of limited as uh, medical students, not in the surgical residency aspect to really use this advanced material? No, I, I, think, it's, I think it's useful for everybody because your medical students aren't going to just be seeing the more rudimentary parts of the procedure. They're still going to be seeing the complex things. And I think it's something that um, you know, maybe I didn't. I didn't notice or maybe I, I took for granted a little bit as a medical student, but, you know, so oftentimes these are your first experiences in the operating room. And a lot of times just the exposure to being in that type of environment can be a little bit overwhelming. So I think having the opportunity to see the different steps of a procedure and just familiarize yourself with the flow of the operation in general can make the time that you ultimately spend there as a new learner you know, just more efficient, better. You're, you're not going to be taken off guard by something that maybe happens or is distracted. And I think um, having that exposure early, even if it's for more advanced things, is still good. And at the same time, if if you're considering pursuing something like an otolaryngology residency, then you know understanding some of the things that you might be doing three, four, five years down the road, I think that exposure as early as you can get it is is something that's valuable. That's a great point too. Yeah, there's a lot that can happen in the operating room that can really be overwhelming when you're not used to that. If you're not expecting it, haven't seen it before. I know a lot of students that get lightheaded the first few times. Um, Mm-hmm. Sort of getting the the visual comprehension, and I guess it's in a way uh, sort of like hands on experience as close as you're going to get. Exactly, and you know, the other the other part of this too is that other than just surgical videos, the other thing that you have are surgical atlases, and so much it's like you have step A and then you have step B, where you know you're going from one thing to the other. Um, but oftentimes it's like those you know how to draw an owl thing where those three circles, and then in the next picture, suddenly there's this beautiful owl, and you have no idea how they got there. Um, so I think for these surgeries, what they're really doing is they're filling in the gaps from step A to step B that you might see in surgical atlases, um, and actually you're seeing how things are done and how you're actually getting there from A to B. Awesome. And I suppose even from 
your first course usually being anatomy. Uh, I know in my school that we had a lot of students per cadaver in the cadaver lab. So uh, you weren't necessarily able to put A to B to C, but if you get a, a personal close view of it through surgery such as this, uh, it would be great experiential learning even from an early stage. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, while I think in general surgery, you know, when you're doing cadaver dissection, that's one thing, but cadaver dissection and, and identifying anatomical structures is very different from a surgical dissection. Um, and I know even from personal experience, my anatomy of the ear, you know, that you're not, you're not drilling a mastoid bone in an anatomy lab and you're not doing an endoscopic sinus surgery. You're basically just splitting the head in half, um, down the middle. And so I, I think seeing things from the perspective of an actual surgeon, um, just gives you a better framework and a better reference point for understanding how things are done and, and sort of letting you kind of see for yourself whether or not it might be something you either are very interested in or can rule out very early so that you don't spend a lot of time, you know, going down a route where you ultimately find you wouldn't be happy or a good fit. Good point. True. Um, all right. Who do you usually get to film these? I imagine there are potential issues with, uh, I don't know, HIPAA or hospital regulation. So it's really great to see more of these personalized and, and video materials coming out from the operating room. So I'm kind of curious to know more about how that works. Yeah, so when I was at um, so when I was at Duke during residency, um, I actually applied through uh, through our institutional review board. Um, you know, talking about that, that the goal of the study was really to be quality improvement, and from that being that, you know, we we de-identify things whenever we have a, a patient's face, we either blur that out or we have explicit consent from the patient in order to do so. And so, um, from that standpoint, um, you know, we were approved by our IRB there at Duke to to do this study and to film in the operating room, and so. Usually what would happen would be either at the, the last preoperative visit or the morning of surgery uh, in the preoperative holding area, I would go and consent patients personally and talk to them a little bit about Jomi and what Jomi uh, meant. And I think that when, I, when we explain to patients that we're not just here to be surgeons, but we're here to be better surgeons, we're here to improve how we learn, we're here to improve how other people learn and that they can somehow be a part of that and somehow take part of that, a lot of them were actually excited to have that opportunity. So we, we talked to them about what the journal was and where these videos would be going and how they would be uh, distributed and displayed. And um, I would say in, in, in all of my time there, I didn't have a single person say no to that. Certainly when we talk to them, nothing about whether they take a part of it or don't take a part of it changes the care that they receive. But either way, again, most of them were very excited to have the opportunity to say, oh, that's, you know, that's great. Somebody's going to be able to learn from the experience that they're going through. And I think a lot of them saw value in that. And it's probably pretty cool to be able to actually watch your surgery afterwards if you know, that might not have been an option in another scenario. That's, that's correct. So that, that, is, that is one of the options that we can let the patients know when the surgery is done and over with. And I would say it's probably a third of patients who are very interested in seeing it. And the other two thirds were or um, not, I wouldn't say squeamish, but less interested necessarily in watching it for themselves. I'd be very interested in seeing it myself, but that's just me. Yeah, me as well. That's just, that's, I think, just us as providers. Yeah, probably. So who backs this? Is it used by any institutes currently, any medical schools or anyone else? Yeah, so the, the general, uh, the, the website, so com. If, uh, if you go to there, you can see um, in the top right of the screen, they have a list of current subscribers, uh, and that includes Cornell Medical College, Harvard Medical School, Stanford Medicine. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and it's not just medical schools, but one of the things that we've tried emphasizing as well is surgical tech institutions. So um, for a lot of my videos in particular, uh, the way that I film them is not only you know, the microscopic or the endoscopic footage, 
um, as well as the, the camera on the surgeon's hand. But we also typically set up a GoPro um, near where the surgical tech is uh, to get kind of a panoramic view so that they can see how the instruments are set up for the case and you're actually able to see how uh, the surgical tech is handing instruments uh, off and receiving them back from the surgeon. And so we have some surgical tech institutions that are subscribed as well. Uh, and there's over 30 institutions that, that have done that as well. Wow, that's quite a good network uh, using this so far. And I can imagine that they're seeing a lot of benefit from it. I, you know, the videos that I've watched looked very, very awesome to view from a student and recent graduate kind of point of view. But from a surgical residency or above, you can probably notice a lot about other people's techniques too and use it as sort of a self-mentorship, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I, I think when we when when we talked about this, the idea was to gearing this towards medical students and to uh, you know to surgery residents. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of value even for attending surgeons, particularly from a global standpoint. Um, you know, as the thing is, the surgery is not static. We're still learning new techniques. We're still learning learning new surgeries, and oftentimes, in order to to be able to adapt these new techniques, even as an attending surgeon, you have to pay to go to courses, or you go and you spend time with these surgeons in order to learn this. And I think. This is just another avenue where, where people could sit and maybe even learn a new style or a new technique that's a little bit different from maybe the way that they were trained or the way that they've been doing things. Um, and whether or not they want to adopt that is up to them. But at the same time, um, I think it, it certainly affords that opportunity. I don't think we're necessarily limiting ourselves only to medical students or residents. I definitely agree. Well, great. Now that we know a little bit more about what Jomi is and how it's been created and who's sort of following it, backing it, using it, um, you were kind enough to provide us for uh, with a few questions to go over today. Um, should we cover those? Yeah, that would be great. Awesome. All right. So in the typical Inside the Boards fashion, we're going to start with the interrogative of the vignette. And hopefully you won't hear too much thunder and lightning in the background, but I'll try to get through these questions. So the question for... The first one is, which of the following characteristics on ultrasound would increase your suspicion for malignancy? And this is dealing with a 45-year-old female presenting to a clinic for evaluation of a swollen lymph node. On physical exam, no lymphedema is noted, but left-sided thyroid mass is noted. The ultrasound is performed and demonstrates a 2.8-centimeter thyroid nodule. Again, the question is, which of the following characteristics on ultrasound would increase your suspicion of malignancy? The answer options are A, predominantly cystic, B, lack of microcalcifications, C, wider than tall in transverse view, D, hypoechoic, E, decreased central vascularity. So would you like to go over this question with us? Yeah, so this is uh, kind of a bread and butter question um, that I think you can see on a surgery rotation. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk about uh, thyroid disease in general is I think it's, it's relevant not only to the general practitioners, family practice, endocrinology, uh, but also general surgeons as well as head and neck surgeons. And so really what this question is, is geared towards asking is the characteristics on ultrasound of thyroid nodules that either kind of classify them more into a um, a benign or a, a suspicious for malignancy type of category. Um, and so what it's really trying to do here is, is, is gauge the reader's understanding of that. And, and the reason why that's important is that um, so clinically, if you're seeing a patient in clinic, um, you know, if you have an, uh, a nodule that, that's 2.8 centimeters, more, you're going to be recommending that it's biopsy, but your patients may be asking you, well, what are the chances that this is benign or what are the chances that this is malignant? And so um, when we look at answer choice A here, predominantly cystic, 
that's a characteristic of a, of a benign nodule. And if you had a smaller nodule that looked that way, and even some of the bigger nodules that are predominantly cystic, you can, you know, counsel your patients that it's most likely benign. Lack of microcalcifications being the next option. So the presence of microcalcifications um, on an ultrasound actually increases your, your suspicion for malignancy. So that would rule that out as well. Uh, malignant uh, nodules tend to be taller than wide in the transverse view, as well as have increased central vascularity. Because if this is a malignancy, likely they're going to be gearing themselves towards blood flow. Uh, so the correct answer choice for this is the hypoechoic. Uh, and so on an ultrasound, we talk about echogenicity. And so things that are hypoechoic are those um, that appear darker on these. And so uh, that would increase your suspicion of a malignant nodule. Okay. Yeah, I know that thyroid can be very complicated for students. And it's something I've mixed up many times in the past. And generally, remember the, the one centimeter rule. If it's over one centimeter, you're going to biopsy. But sometimes the ultrasound characteristics aren't necessarily a, a factor that we know as well or focus on as much. So I like that this sort of took it to the next level and was a good explainer of some of the concerns to be looking out for with thyroid nodules. For the second question here, we have the interrogative is, what is the mechanism of action for the medications you recommend? And this is for a 28-year-old female presenting to the clinic for continued management of her hyperthyroidism. While her symptoms have been well-controlled, she indicates that she and her husband would like to begin trying to conceive. So what is the mechanism of action for the medications you would recommend? A female patient with hyperthyroidism that is trying to conceive is basically what this is asking. And the answer choices are A, inhibits unbound T4, B, prevents organification of iodine, C, suppresses the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, D, increases the metabolism and breakdown of T3, and E is has a negative feedback loop to suppress release of thyroid hormone. So how should a medical student approach this type of question? So I, I think this is where we're getting more towards what you're going to see on these uh, USMLE um, exams here. And what's uh, really important uh, to think about is that these questions aren't going to be just like the first question that's uh, test your knowledge or test your recall. Often they're going to be these secondary uh, or tertiary levels of thinking. And so what it's going to require you to do is, is understand not only what the initial question is asking, but then how things might be working behind that. And so in this instance, uh, the question specifically is the mechanism of action. So what that requires you to do is understand that the, the different mechanisms of action for different hyperthyroid medications, and then also understanding that there are certain medications that you should or should not recommend for patients who are either pregnant or trying to conceive. And so in this instance, you know, the question is asking uh, for hyperthyroidism, you think kind of on the first level here, what's the mechanism that you, or what's the medication that you would recommend? And what are the two big ones that you're, that you're considering here, mesinazole and PTU or propothyroluracil. And so we know from this that, or at least the way I used to, to remember this was you use PTU or the one that starts with a P for pregnancy. And so once you kind of get to that level and understand that's the medication you'd recommend, you need to think of the next level, the mechanism of action for those medications. And so, uh, for PTU, the correct answer would be that this prevents the organification of iodine. Uh, the other options there um, refer to things like corticosteroids, so suppressing the uh, HPT axis or 
having a negative feedback loop would just be actually free T4 or, or a medication like that. And so um, that wouldn't actually be treating our hyperthyroidism. So again, this is just kind of trying to to not only you know emphasize one of the questions you may ask, whether whether it be related to how to treat hyperthyroidism, but also just just ensuring that you you're able to not just have a recall, but also think to the next level for how these questions may be asked. And it's back to those old pharmacology questions that I never liked. <laughs> Mechanisms <laughs> of action. And I like the acronym there. The P for PTU and pregnancy is a great way to remember and distinguish between the two because it's easy, especially in the testing scenario when stress is high, to mix up PTU and methimazole on a question like this. Mm-hmm. And then the last question is asking which branchial arch does the injured nerve arise? And this is after undergoing for microcapillary carcinoma in a 55-year-old woman who's complaining of hoarseness. So after this surgery, she's complaining of hoarseness. An examination of her vocal cords during phonation reveals an immobile left vocal cord. So which branchial arch does the injured nerve arise? And this is laid out fairly easily. We have A is first branch, B second Looks like we're skipping third. So C is fourth, D is the fifth branch, and E is the sixth. Perfect. So the, again, this is another question that requires you to not only understand what the question is asking, but then think again to the next level here. Um, and so let's just start out by ruling out D, fifth, because um, we all know that the fifth branchial arch uh, actually does not give rise to anything. Uh, and so really, we would be dealing with one, two, three, four, and six, and three is not an option. So that allows us to rule one out right off the bat. Um, when we're looking um, at, at the root of the question here, we have a patient who's had thyroid surgery and is now hoarse and has an immobile left vocal cord. And so the most likely thing that would have been injured to the result in this would be the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so once we kind of understand that, we need to think about what branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve comes off of. And that comes off of the vagus nerve. And so then we have to consider from what branchial arch does this injured nerve arise? So this is a little bit of a tricky question in that the vagus nerve actually does does arise or different aspects of it are contributed by by both the fourth and the sixth branchial arch. And so for the fourth arch, that's actually going to give rise to the superior laryngeal nerve, which is going to ultimately branch off and into internal and external branches, the internal giving sensation to the superglottis uh, on the affected side. So the sixth branchial arch will actually give rise uh, to the vagus and the recurrent laryngeal nerve branch. So the correct answer in this question is, and again, this is just getting you to, to understand that this isn't going to be the USMLE and these steps aren't going to be rote memorization questions. They're going to be the second and third level. So the better that you are at being able to, to think of these things quickly off the bat, it's going to afford you more time on the actual questions to then be able to think to the second and the third level. And that's a great throwback to embryology and anatomy material that Oh, and I haven't seen for years, so I'm glad that you were able to describe it very well because I would have messed that up somewhere along the lines. <laughs> well, that is great. I think those are uh, very good questions that every student should be quite aware of and covering very important material for the steps. And I'm wondering what recommendations you might have for students that are looking to go into a specialty such as yours or surgery in general. Well, so it's a little bit difficult. And by that, I mean, you're going to be an advantage if you know what you want to do early, because what that's going to do is that's going to afford you the opportunity to spend more time 
uh, with the people who are in your field. It's going to give you the opportunity to do certain research projects within that field, which we all know for some of the competitive subspecialties, having a research interest in research publications will always you know, put you one step ahead of the rest. Now, I say that and I hedge on that because I didn't decide on otolaryngology as a field until the very end of my third year and starting fourth year. And so if you're um, if you're undecided, um, by all means, just understand that you're not you're not out of the game yet. And there's always time to come back, show that you're interested in something. And ultimately, whatever you decide on is what you should should put all your best your best interests and best efforts towards. Good to know. Is there a particular way that you recommend students reach out to you or others at Jomi? So most of our editorial board uh, should have our emails published on the website. Otherwise, when you go on the website, you can create a free account. Um, as you start to watch videos, you'll see a pop-up of um, sort of our, quote, Jomi helpers there that you can reach out to an email. Um, and certainly, I'm always available via email if there's any questions or if anybody's interested in getting involved in any otolaryngology projects. And my email through the website is scott, S-C-O-T-T, dot brown, at jomi, J-O-M-I, dot com. Perfect. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for explaining what Jomi is and giving us great details on the Journal of Medical Insights. I hope a lot of students go and check this resource out now. It's very interesting. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, good luck to everybody who's studying for the board. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today. You've been listening to Inside the Boards, the best free audio resource for board prep and med school.